0: Good evening. We have tried two months in a row to have a second Sunday night question and answer session, and for two months in a row we've missed it by a week. There have been things going on. I'm not going to tell you. Going to, there's going to be a question and answer uh, Sunday night, whenever you guys, uh, whenever it works with the schedule. Uh, send me questions, Mr. Neil Pollard at gmail.com. Uh, send it to the church office at Lehman Office, COC. Uh, for the second month in a row, you have supplied the questions, and I'm grateful for that. I want to jump right in. We're going to look at three things that you have asked about. It's really helpful as a preacher to know what's on your mind. What are the things that you have questions about? What are the things that you're dealing with? And how can we point to Scripture and find answers to those matters? You know that's the most important thing for us to think about in a question and answer series. I'm going to try to the very best of my ability not to share my opinions with you. I'm going to try to drive you to the scripture. You know it is at the heart and the soul of who we want to be and who we're trying to be as the people of God. We want to, if I can say it this way, we've said it this way a lot in the past. We do want a book, chapter, and verse that can be demeaned sometimes, but the the opposite of that is not having a book, chapter, and verse for what we do. We need authority for what we do in whatever matter of life it is. We're going to look at some different areas. It doesn't really matter what I have to say or think about it. It matters what God's Word has to say about it. So we're going to jump right into that first question. It's really a three-part question that has to do with the day of judgment and giving account for the things that we have done in our bodies. And so as we approach this, you can look at the three parts of that. In light of the fact that we're going to stand before a God who knows everything that we have done or have not done, why is it that we have to give an account for those things that he already knows about? And then when it comes to somebody who is a child of God, who is saved by the blood of Christ, why does one have to stand before God and give an account of sins that have already been wiped clean? And a third question has to do with one in the opposite condition. For one who is already lost, a lost sinner, why would they have to stand and give an account to God because it's already too late for them to do anything about that? I think those are some very astute questions. And I'd like for us to look at this idea of accountability. Now, time we come to any matter like this, it's, I think a proper exercise of humility for us to look at a passage like Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine, Not as a cop-out, but as a reality. And that says, Moses says, even though he's talking about a different covenant, the secret things belong to God. That's still the truth. The things that are revealed belong to us and to our children that we may observe all the word of the law. Well, when it comes to heaven, hell, and the judgment, there are some things the Bible reveals to us. There are some implications, but there are some things that we don't know. And so we're going to operate from that premise. But there is a lot that is said about our subject, and I want to look at it, at least from an overview fashion. I can't drill down in in great detail. But let's begin to think about the judgment day and giving an account. And the first thing that we need to observe with answering this question is, is that Scripture makes it very clear that we are going to give a personal accounting of ourselves to God in a judgment scene that's described in Matthew 25, when all the nations are gathered before him, verse 31 through 33, and he divides them as a shepherd divides the sheep from the goats. How do I know that I'm going to give an individual accounting of my life on the judgment day before God? Well, Jesus would say in Matthew 12, verse 36, for example, that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give an account thereof on the day of judgment. For by your words, you'll be justified, and by your words, you'll be condemned. Jesus is saying that the very words that we say, even in idle, careless fashion, we're going to give an account for those. Well, Romans 14, and verse 12 says it just in a very simple way each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Elders are told in Hebrews 13 and verse 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they care for your souls as those who must give an account. There are four men who shepherd this congregation. They're not going to give an account for the work at Three Forks or the work at Mount Pleasant or the work at Greenwood Park or anywhere else. They are going to give an account... For the sheep in this fold. A personal accounting. In 1 Peter chapter 4, 4 and 5, Peter is talking to Christians. And as he speaks to them about how the world doesn't understand why they don't run with them to the same uh, level of dissipation and they malign you. Peter says they are going to give an account to him who judges the living and the dead. Well, what did that mean to Peter's audience? There were individuals in their lives who were persecuting them, who were making the Christian life hard for them. And Peter says they are going to give an account to the one who's ready to judge the living and the dead. And so the idea of personal accountability is laid out very clearly in Scripture. Now, I also want you to notice with me that there is an individual component to the judgment. I heard the late Wendell Winkler say it this way, at the judgment bar of God, I will be alone. In other words, I'm going to be judged individually. And I don't know in the greatest sense of things that I'm going to be as concerned about all the others that are there. It's going to be an accounting between me and God. Paul makes that clear. Second Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10, he says, For We must all give an account of ourselves to God that each one may receive the things which he has done in his body according to what he has done, whether it be good or evil. Second Corinthians 5 and verse 10. In Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21, Jesus is coming to the climax of the Sermon on the Mount. and, And as he does, he takes us to the judgment. And he says in Matthew 7 and verse 21, Not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father which is in heaven. For many will say unto me in that day. Let's pause there for a moment. Is is Jesus picturing large groups of people who in chorus, in mass, are going to say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out devils? Perhaps, but that group is made up of individuals who are going to be answering based on their individual lives and their response to his authority. And Jesus will say to them, Depart from me, I never knew you, into outer darkness. There's an individual component Where we're going to stand, we may have the best spouse in the world, the greatest parents in the world, the most wonderful children, the greatest brethren, but that will have no factor, good or bad, with regard to our individual accounting. So that being the case, is it such, or could we say, that there's also a public uh, component? Are there reasons why that judgment would be public and not just private? Well, I want us to think about some things that the Bible tells us. Reasons why there is a public aspect to this. The first is this parable of the wheat and the tares. And in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus talks about this, that there were enemies that sowed the tares, that is the chaff among the wheat, and it grows up together, and the workers are wondering, what do we do? Do we take it all now? He says, wait till harvest time, and at harvest time, then it'll be taken care of. The disciples want to know what this is about. And what Jesus says in explanation of the parable in Matthew thirteen thirty-eight through 43 is that there has got to be a moment where everyone knows who belongs to him and who does not. It's not necessarily apparent in this life, is it? We don't necessarily know always who belongs to God and who does not. We may think one belongs to God who is not preparing themselves for the judgment. There may be circumstances we don't know about, and so we can't weigh in on that. But at the judgment, the Lord is going to make clear all those who belong to him and all those who do not. But there's a public aspect of the judgment because there needs to be the vindication of the individual. You think about the sacrifices that you will have made on your way to inheriting eternal life. But between here and there, there are going to be people in this world who are going to speak against you, who are going to uh, say that that you're not what you are trying to be, who are, are going to say that you're not worthy of admiration or respect, and they certainly wouldn't say that you're going to be saved. But the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 3 and verse 26 that God is just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. I believe what's going to happen according to Paul in this passage is, is that the Lord is going to let the world who has maligned and who has slandered the Christian, He is going to let the world know He belongs, she belongs to me, and they're going to live with me for eternity. It's an opportunity for the world who has spoken evil against us to see they were wrong. But it's also public so that God can be justified. It's a vindication of God's character. In the same chapter, this chapter speaks a lot about the judgment. Romans chapter 3 and verse 4 points us to the judgment scene and it says in Romans 3, uh in, uh, in verse 6, it shows us the judgment. Verse 4 says, let God be true and let every man be a liar. And then he quotes David's words in Psalm 51 in verse 4. He says, you need to be justified when you speak, that is, be approved of in your judgments. You know, there's going to be people who say, I don't think the Lord's been fair seems like God handpicks certain people. God's character is going to be perfectly justified because Revelation 20 verse 12 says, He's going to open the books. He's going to open up the the book of our lives. He's going to open up the books and He's going to judge every man according to their works. God's character is going to be vindicated because those who have been faithful to Him, who have been obedient to His word, he is going to demonstrate to the world his perfect justice and righteousness. And I think there's another uh, a public vindication or a public aspect of the judgment is so that he can reveal even the things that men tried to hide. In Romans chapter, uh, Luke chapter 12 and verse 2 says that very thing. In First Timothy chapter 5 verse 23, it says that the sins of some men are evident beforehand. The sins of others follow after them into the judgment. Hebrews 4.13 says that all things are naked and laid bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And, And so there's a purpose, it seems, as we read through the New Testament, for the judgment being not only personal and individual, but being public. But the great news has to do with the second question that was asked. And that is, what's going to happen to the sins of the faithful child of God? Now let's step back for a moment. Let's be honest. I believe in most accountable person's life that's here tonight, there are things that you have done for which you have sought repentance, that you have had forgiven, that you don't want to be heard by anybody at the judgment, or at least the general public. In Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 12, you have one of several statements that are made. Hiram made mention of several of them last week. The point is abundant just with the one passage. I will remember their sins no more. In 1 John chapter 1 verse 7, we have not just an assurance that we can know in this life that we are saved. That we are right with God. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all unrighteousness. When the Lord stands, or the individual stands before the Lord on the judgment day, every individual that Jesus looks at, He's going to see one of two things. He is either going to see the sins of that individual that are not forgiven, or He is going to see His blood. If you want to see how God thinks toward forgiven sin, all you got to do is look at the Passover lamb. God is illustrating for us what His disposition is toward sins that have the blood covering them. That when He gets to that place, that's a house in Exodus 12, but with us, it's our house. When He gets to us and He sees the blood on the doorpost, He's going to pass over Isn't it going to be wonderful? There's 7.8 something billion people alive right now. Isn't it going to be wonderful for the Lamb who sits on the throne to get to your life and mine and when it comes to the sins thereof say, I see my blood. Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now I don't know that that's exhaustive I don't know in a question and answer unless we're going to be here until 8 or 9 o'clock that we can do that. But that's a good start. Maybe that will give us some place to look in order to dig more deeply. Question number two. It's this question that if I have it right from the guys in the AV booth, that this is the reason why folks at home are having to watch this YouTube live streaming and not uh, on another social media platform. And, and that is this. What does the Bible have to say about the LGBTQ movement. You know, I I think that, that we're tempted to believe that this has just popped up almost overnight. But I want to suggest to you that the seeds of what we're seeing today have been planted for well over a century of time. What we are looking at is a movement, and when you look at the symbols of it, Um, And it depends on what literature you're looking in. It might be, and it has kind of morphed or or graduated uh, LGBT to LGBTQ to LGBTQIA to LGBTQIAPD. And if you break that down, that's lesbian, gay, bisexual, uh, uh, transgender. No Q's. Q's next. LGBT. Transgender. Queer and questioning, intersexual, asexual, pan or polysexual, and demisexual. Now, all of it kind of stems from a mindset. And at the heart of this, and by the way, I don't always do this, but I want to give you a resource if you want to study, particularly where things have kind of gotten to on the continuum. Now this book is about four years old. I don't know that there's a better book that's been written. It's written by Nancy R. Piercy. I don't know what a religious persuasion is. It is a, from a religious standpoint, from a, a, a Christian worldview in a broad sense. It's called Love Thy Body. And she traces how we have gotten to where we are. Would you have imagined 20 years ago that a discussion like this would have been warranted, much less be a part of our each and every daily life? The premise at the bottom of this, and I think she's on to something, is that in this broader movement... There is a move to disassociate the body and the mind. To lower an estimation of the body and to elevate one's thoughts and feelings and mind. But don't miss the key part of this, that there is an attempt to pull apart, to disassociate the body and the mind. Now, why would that be so key to the very things that we're talking about? You can lower your view of the body. It opens the door philosophically to such things as abortion, to euthanasia, to the hookup culture where there's sex without relationships, to homosexuality, and to transgenderism. Now, in one sense, this is a very ancient philosophy. It'll take us back to the birth of Christianity. Christianity was established in the midst of the Greco-Roman world. And the Greeks and the Romans had philosophers, and those philosophies went all over the place. Go to Acts chapter 17, and the Apostle Paul goes to Mars Hill, and there's all these folks who are sitting around doing nothing but uh, talking about something new. They had all these different ways to explain purpose and meaning and destiny. And in fact, Christianity is born at a time at the beginning of something. In the New Testament times we would call it proto Gnosticism. In the second century it would be a full blown doctrine. You know what Gnosticism said? Doesn't matter what you do with your body, the body's evil. Your mind, your heart, your thoughts are a completely different plane. And so that's what you're concerned about. Don't worry about your body. It's an ancient form of the very things that we're looking at right now. It was so dangerous that New Testament writers, two different writers, Paul and John, devote entire New Testament books to studying those subjects. That's Colossians and First John. But there's a sense in which it's also much more contemporary. That is, if you look at the pipeline that gets us to 2021 with the very things that we're talking about. You can go back to a man by the name of George Hegel who taught dualism. Hegel believed in God. But he believed that nature and the mind were two different entities and that mind was always evolving. You you see, that mind can change. Nature involves the body. Karl Marx came along. All he did was he took God out of it. And he promoted the same idea. Well, you also add that to Charles Darwin. And Charles Darwin took God out of the equation the supernatural. And so he says there's no purpose and meaning, no value to life. And if there is no superintending God who created everything, then there cannot be any absolute moral truth. And without absolute moral truth, there's no judgment that can be made ultimately on things like the preborn child, the terminally ill, or even one's identity at birth. Dualism is very central to what we're talking about here this pulling apart. And it's how it even, uh, it lowers the view of the body. But here's the thing, if, I don't know how, if you were, you probably weren't looking for this in the scripture reading the in Romans 1, 18 through, 18 through 27, but it's just one of several examples where you see that Bible writers have a very high view of the body. Not to be narcissistic and to be all vain and concerned about our body, but it has a high view of the body. 1 Corinthians 15 says that we're going to be raised. We're going to, this body, we're going to have a new body. The body means so much to God. Certainly He designed it and He created it in a certain way that He sent He, God, who was God from the beginning. John 1-1, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. Jesus is deity for eternity. But what did He do? He came into this life in a body. God exalts. He says what you do matters in your body and it is tied to your mind and your thoughts. They're not separate entities. Now, what I want to do is I want to look at a passage that you probably don't associate with our subject that we're talking about right now. Matthew nineteen three through 12. This is the text where the Pharisees come along and they're testing Jesus and they say to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause? Jesus answers and he says, Do um, you not know that he who created them from the beginning created them male and female? Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Therefore there are no longer two but one flesh. What God has joined together, let not man put asunder. And they, they don't like that answer. It thoroughly answers the test. And so they come up with another test. They say, well, why then did Moses... Permit them to have a writing of a divorcement to put her away. Jesus says, Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, um, permitted it to be so, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say unto you, that whosoever puts away his wife, except it be for fornication, and marries another, commits adultery. And whoever marries her that is put away, commits adultery. The disciples understood just how arbitrary and narrow and objective that truth was because of what they say next. Lord, if it's that way with a man and his wife, it's better not to marry. Jesus says, not all can receive this, but those to whom it was given. As he's saying, you can follow this rule if you want to, but if you don't like it, you don't have to. That's not what he's saying at all. He's saying not everybody can receive that, but those to whom it is given. Who is it given to? Those who are going to be disciples of his, those who are going to follow him. And then he follows it up by saying there are three categories of eunuchs. There are those who are eunuchs from their mother's womb. There are those who are made eunuchs by men. And some are eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. Let him who can receive it, receive it. Jesus understood how difficult that teaching was going to be. How hard it was going to be in a society that gets further and further away from God. You're saying, Neil, you have lost me. Aren't we talking about LGBTQ issues in the Bible? Yes, we are. I want to notice four things from that text. That he who created them from the beginning created them male and female. This is not a philosophical statement. This is a physicality. Our Lord is dealing biologically when he speaks of the fact that there's a male and a female, he is, he is talking about something that's observable. He's talking about something that doctors and nurses can look at objectively at the birth of a child and put on a birth certificate, something that's seen. Cardiologist Paula Johnson says that um, the the cells, that men and women are different down to the cellular and the molecular level. There's differences in their organs from their brains to their hearts to their lungs to their joints. Jesus is setting out an axiomatic truth at the very beginning. He's saying... And then Jesus would know, Colossians 1.16 says He's the Creator. He created everything. He says He, interesting, isn't it? He who created them from the beginning created them male and female. There's a design argument here. He's not talking about feelings and thoughts and philosophy. He is saying anatomically, God who made them from the beginning made them male and female. Then, there's a second truth that we can see here. He created a one flesh relationship. Now, Jesus, I don't think that Jesus, or Moses, whom he is quoting, is making just a sexual statement. But let's don't pass over the fact of the the sexual uh, component to this. He is saying that God designed the body naturally. When you're reading Romans chapter 1, That's why what the Apostle Paul is saying, he's not demeaning. He's not saying, he's not using it in an ugly way. He's not talking down to people who may struggle with these feelings. He's saying there's a natural function. God anatomically made male and female in a certain way. And when one leaves that natural function for that which is unnatural or that is contrary to nature, now here he's talking about homosexuality, but that truth would apply even to the transgender question. No matter how I feel or think that I am a mother or a wife or a woman, I anatomically am a man. I can't change that. See, this is a a, a physical thing. God made them one flesh. And that's not just for procreation. And that's not just for physical satisfaction. God says, I will sustain and strengthen you in the male-female relationship in a marriage that is ordained by my word in a way that no other relationship can do. But then, third, I want you to notice with me that he created arbitrary objective standards. In verse 6 through 9. I mean, typically when I'm preaching this sermon, I realize it can be a very painful subject. It's typically in the context of a heterosexual relationship. Here's the bottom line. We can't change that. We need to speak it lovingly and kindly. God's law for marriage, divorce, and remarriage is one husband, one wife for life. It gives an exception in Matthew 19 and verse 9. And that's for fornication. You can put away your spouse for their fornication... And be married again. That applies to everybody. Not just Christians. Because he says. Whosoever. May I suggest to you. That somewhere back there. We got off the train of arbitrary standards. Of objective truth. And we said. I know it says that. But I think. I want to accommodate. A situation. And so. We're going to change that. When we do that. We lose the moral authority to get back on the track when it gets to other matters. Where we find ourselves in 2021 with issues like this, we began to give that ground up 50, 60 years ago when we began to try to change what God's Word says. See, his point is there are objective, arbitrary standards that deals with our sexual identity, that deals with our sexual relationships, that deals with who we are. He created those. Here's the other thing, and I pray very much, and, and if I have not, I'm I'm very sorry. And I say that sincerely. I think the way that we have to approach this in any sin situation is with patience and compassion. Maybe you don't see that in verses ten through twelve, but maybe that's because we we'll let the world describe or define patience and compassion. Patience and compassion does not mean indulgence and compromise of eternally revealed truths. We are not being patient or compassionate with anyone if we tell them that they're okay where they are when Jesus has said they're not okay where they are. But having said that, I want you to see how Jesus conducted himself, who who found themselves confused or found themselves in complicated situations. Jesus was compassionate. You remember Jesus with a Samaritan woman, a woman who had a very sordid past, who had a a very seedy history. She comes to Jesus in John chapter 4. What about the woman caught in adultery? The men had the rocks in their hands. They were ready to take her life. They were ready to end it right there. And Jesus masterfully defends her and he tells her to go and sin no more. And then there's the sinful woman in Mark chapter 7 who everybody was looking down on. Jesus didn't join in. That would have been the social pressure, but he didn't. He dealt with her with patience and compassion i'm trying to, to think jesus came into our world today and these circumstances were existent as they are how would he handle that how would he handle that when he got on social media how would he handle that from a pulpit or from a bible classroom see there's a there's a line that we're trying to walk isn't there It's Ephesians 4.15. We need to speak the truth. We cannot be apologetic or ashamed of it. But we need to do it in love. Folks who are struggling with things like um, gender dysphoria, that is confusion about whether they're male or or female, they need to see modeled in children of God the trait that is supposed to define us. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. They're going to get it... With truth, but compassion from Christians. They need to see our love. You know, they, they need to see that we're here to help. Piercy says that those who have bought into the transgender ideology and its, its ancestors, they are damaged by sexual theories. If they're damaged, then what does it we say about the church? The church is a hospital where we can bring sick people to the great physician. And here's the thing. All of us are sick, just with different spiritual illnesses. Romans 3 and verse 23. Maybe there are some helping situations where you feel more comfortable than others, but our comfort level has never been made the determining factor as to whether or not we're going to help. There are people who are confused and who need help, who need our love and encouragement, To show them God's Word. Jesus, when He came, Mark 1 and verse 15, told people that they needed to believe and repent and follow the gospel. 1 Corinthians 6 9 through 11, the Apostle Paul could say to folks in the Corinth church that there were folks in a lot of different spiritual sickness conditions in their past. Homosexuality was one of those. But He could say of them, You are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified. I don't know the day-to-day teaching that went on to make that a reality. I could imagine very easily the Apostle Paul sitting down with somebody who's struggling with the very things that we're talking about today, patiently, compassionately helping them through that. You know, we would maybe like to make ourselves as a church a cocoon where we could insulate ourselves from a disintegrating society, but God doesn't have us here for that reason. And you know, when you talk about some of the things that we've been talking about a lot, and that is reaching out into our community, being outwardly focused and trying to seek and to save the lost, which is what Jesus came into this world to do, Matthew 18 and verse 11, there are going to be people in all kinds of different struggles. And God has equipped us and He expects us to be able to respond to that in the way that He would. Again, perhaps there needs to be a series on that. I I don't know, but... We'll leave it there for tonight. Let me end with a kind of a light-hearted one. I don't know how many of you have heard of the Chosen. It's on VidAngel. It's on YouTube. 194 million views of this series. It's a dramatization of the life of Christ. And the question is, what about watching the Chosen? Is it right or wrong to do so? Just, I don't know if I don't usually do this. Raise a hand. How many of you have heard of it? How many of you have watched it? I, I'm, I'm into season two. I, I've, I've watched b- both seasons of that. I think it's it's riveting. There are some licenses that are taken with that. There are some filling in of the gaps that that cause a storyline to move forward. What I appreciate about it is, is that it allows us to see Jesus in, in the way I think Scripture reveals Him to us as very as all God and all man, but one who loves His creation and who sees the best in us. I think it's a message that our, our society needs right now, who who has a very low view of itself and of, of others. Um, I, I believe that um, it can be a very faith-building experience, but here's the warning that I want to give you. I would recommend that you don't Watch it and, and swallow everything that it says by way of things that are asserted in the storyline. For example, Simon the Zealot, one of the apostles, is depicted in one of the episodes as being the brother of the man who was at the pool of Bethsaida for 38 years and had no one to take him down to the water. It's, it's neat, it's, it's, it's touching, but as they say, I guess the, 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 uh, the, the experts say, that ain't in the Bible. That's just something they put together to make that storyline move. There's, there's a, a repeated intimation that Matthew it, has a, a crush on Mary Magdalene. It's, it's handled very tastefully. But if you think that that's true, you need to realize that ain't in the Bible. There are going to be some things that, and, and of course the series is, is very early. We need to always look and think about and evaluate everything through the lens of Scripture. So be prepared if you have any question about anything uh, or don't feel like your Bible knowledge is where you want it to be. uh, Go through the Gospels real thorough and then watch uh, The Chosen. It's free. Uh, And I I think there are a lot of good things that we can say about uh, its potential impact on society. It will get people in maybe a better place than, than they were. But it's not the standard. This is measured against that don't know how one offers an invitation after those three diverse <laughs> questions except to say god's word has the answer to everything anything that we face as diverse as these things are and his answer the heart of his answer is jesus christ and he wants you to avail yourself of the one who is the way the truth and the life he wants you to respond to the great love and sacrifice That he gave on our behalf. What we couldn't give ourselves. And he wants us to respond to that. By believing he is who he says he is. Repenting of our sins and being baptized to have our sins washed away. Maybe you've not done that tonight. There could not be a better master. There could not be a better life. There could not be a better hope. Than what Christ provides. Maybe you're a child of God who is struggling and living the Christian life. Maybe in none of the ways that we've talked about tonight. Maybe in a completely different way. And you need us to pray for you. It would be our honor to do that. If this is your invitation, will not you come right now as we stand and sing.